0: The Startup to Scale Up Game Plan is brought to you by Alpena Search, Europe's premier talent search firm, dedicated to helping technology startups and scale-ups recruit high-impact executives. Now over to your host, Gary Riemann.
1: My guest on today's episode of the Startup to Scale Up Game Plan is Sampo Heitenen, founding CEO at Mass Global. who, and this really is not hyperbole, say they are delivering a revolution in transportation. Uh, Now, Mass Global recently raised 50 million euros in funding from the likes of Nordic Ninja, Mitsubishi, and Toyota, and the world's first mobility-as-a-service company offering a paradigm change in transport services. Sampo developed the concept from an abstract idea to a service that's been deployed in several European cities and could well pose a huge threat to traditional individual car ownership. So Sampo, a very warm and revolutionary welcome to the Startup to Scale Up game plan. Thank you. Great to be here. So Sampo, tell me, what does mobility as a service offer that is truly unique and revolutionary? First of all, How I want to think of it is that there's been a disruption through tech
0: or innovation in quite a number of fields. When I started thinking about, okay, how could this disruption look like? How would it look like in our beloved mobility or transport sector? And thinking about it, you have to go and look at what then needs to be disrupted or what should be or could be disrupted. The biggest thing out there holds about 76% of the value of the total market is the car. And now, let's face it, it's a great product. Then if you want to disrupt it, you have to think about why do we actually have it? And then you need to go all the way back to the t Fords And what is it for us? What does it resemble? Why do people love their cars? And why have they loved it? I've given over 2,000 speeches about this in just about every continent or just about everywhere. It's the same thing. And that's why it's so cool. It's the freedom. Probably one of the most profound feelings we have, this idea of feeling free. And that means, what does the freedom mean? It's to be able to go anywhere, anytime on a whim. Then mobility as a service would mean that, okay, we'd have to be comparable with that. How do I give people the same sense, the same thought, the same consistency, or the same idea of freedom without the car ownership? which, on the other hand, brings a bit of a hassle for the system and also for people. But we accept it because we love the freedom. When I thought about it myself a long time ago, i have got kids and everything, and we had the car over there, and I'm a transport engineer from background. I thought, I should know better, but why on earth do I have that car there lying around? I thought, and I thought, so what would have to happen that I would give it up? I, I would claim that this actually the question what would it take for a person to give up a car is probably going to be the biggest question for our economic world, economic growth for the next decades. And what does it take? And you you can ask yourself, you can ask your friends, what would it really take to give up your car? It's quite simple. And I've asked this question thousands of times and the answer is always the same. It's if someone could promise. If you can promise this anywhere, anytime, and even on a whim, then, well, that would be fine. But you can't because, you know, there's nothing out there that guarantees that. Public transport in places like London or Helsinki, where I come from, it's great. It might even take up to 90% of your needs. But yeah, still, I don't feel free because I have to be covered for everything. But if I add in taxis for the times, it starts to be there, but then then I need to go out to the countryside every now and then. But if I, if I put rental cars, car shares, bike shares, scooters, All of those things trains into the mix and say, look, I've got all these things. I think you should be covered. And that's what the whole concept of mobility as a service means, is that we take all the ingredients and we put them together in order to make something different, more than the pieces of it, which is your freedom, the guarantee of freedom to go places you want to go, where you
1: want to be. So, Samper, which countries is your service currently available in? We're in Finland, in in the capital region of Helsinki. And a bit further
0: from that, then we're in West Midlands in Birmingham area, and also in Flanders, Belgium, in uh, mostly in the Antwerp area. And just about to launch Vienna and a few other cities by the end of the year. You've got
1: how many active users? We've got. A bit over 100,000, somewhere between
0: 100,000 and 150,000. Now you've got the CEO of not knowing the exact figure, but somewhere around that.
1: How about the countryside? Does your service have relevance for people who live in rural areas or is it only really viable for urban populations? The whole concept and the ecosystem has been
0: thought quite a lot. How I would like to draw the analogies, I remember, you know, Finland's kind of a, telecom world with country filled with that. And I remember in the 90s and even in the beginning of 2000, people were saying, well, these 3Gs, 4Gs, or any of them, they will never hit the countryside. side. It will just be for the urban dwellers. and It will never come there. But it did. And I would say that the evolution is quite the same here. It's easiest to start with this concept in, in cities and then in suburbs, then smaller cities. But if I want to sell a Londoner, total freedom that's comparable with car. It will have to work in Milton Keynes as well, and even in the outskirts of of those places. So gradually, it will start hitting the more rural area as well, and the opportunities, because the capacity will start building. Once we're in the critical mass, then it, it will happen there. Now, there are ways that the governments and the authorities can, of course, speed the pace by looking at different ways of incentivizing having enough capacity in those areas and such but i would say it will be a bigger theme in rural areas by the time that automated vehicles
1: really start hitting the roads in big big ways so what are the major challenges of literally creating a category from scratch oh (laughs) the fun part of this concept is that people really get it if
0: i say would you like to buy your mobility just like you buy your mobile subscription Everything coming from one stop shop, and we even actually guarantee that you can, we can get you there. All I hear from whether it's in Los Angeles or Chile or London is from those, especially young people, they say, Well, of course, why didn't I think of that should be there? And why isn't it here yet? So it's easy to get their heads around this. Now to produce it, it's a bit harder because no one in the world, not even Uber, will have enough capacity themselves to bring on this all your trips for at least a month to guarantee this freedom. That means that our product is dependent on our partners. So I can't go to London without having TFL as the core of it, having the black gaps, having all the right hails and car shares and because otherwise I will not cover all your trips. And this is really hard. If you have to put into one service trains, electric scooters, ride hails, buses, taxis that are completely different ways that they're thinking and also the user experience has been taught in a different way. Now, that's where it gets a bit tricky because you have to, in a way, get all your partners to take a leap of faith at the same time. And we've seen that if you, let's say that there are six relevant players and you only have five of them, it's not not enough. People get the concept, so we we really need to be good in that. Whilst the good part is that, that people get it, it is hard to I think it was someone who said that our job is, is to take these pieces of a puzzle, don't really fit, and iron out all the differences and make that into a beautiful picture. That takes a bit of time. It takes a bit of patience and takes a lot of cooperation, a lot of co-development with, with a lot of different types of partners. And there's a lot of learning and a lot of trust you need to build to be able to actually even get the first products out.
1: You mentioned trust and cooperation. Now, presumably, there are a lot of vested interests in the markets you're attempting to shake up. So you must surely also be facing a lot of resistance from powerful incumbents. Of
0: course, it takes a lot. Everyone, you know, we're a small startup. And everyone we want to partner up with and everyone in transport is big. It's a big market. So every one of those players is, is really big. And there's a lot of discussion, a lot of joint understanding, a lot of openness to be able to even get started. And yes, there's a, I wouldn't call it resistance in that. I'd say in many ways, it's reasonable doubt. If I'm an incumbent, let's say that I hold a monopoly of public transport or, or I have most of the taxis or I'm the biggest car share company in this area and here comes this company who wants to aggregate it in, in the benefit of the end user, but then I have my doubts. Will they just take over all the users and then they start then they start white labeling us and to, using that power to cut our cost and put us aside? Which is a fair question. They will have all kinds of doubts that or thoughts that, okay, we understand the mobility as a service concept. But could we do it ourselves? Could we expand our monopoly and such? It takes time to get heads around this. I certainly do believe that. But it's the only way how we try to to show this is that, look, we can't live without partners, so it's hard for us then to gain too much power. And we always say to our partners, please don't make an exclusive deal with us. That's how you can safeguard yourself from from a position that we would be too powerful in this. But at the same time, then it's it's asking the right question. I mean, for all of those services, whether how big they are and all of the services that people buy, addressable market now is 24% out of people's consumption. Now, if you really want to open that, the rest remaining 76%, you have to be honest to yourself. No one there, no one out there is capable of really taking on the challenge of what would be more than car ownership but put together yes in reality just this aggregation is the only way that you can actually open up that 76 percent market and now then the question is how should it be open and then i tried to ask all of them well let's look at it from the end user perspective they kind of deserve and what they want If, if i ask you Say you're in the UK, would you like to have all your mobility services from one-stop shop? What would you say?
1: <laughs>
0: I say yes, please. Yeah. The second question is then, this could still come, okay, yeah, we understand. That's how we open up that 76% and, and have a bigger addressable market. Now, this could be done by a local monopoly that says, yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll collect everything and I will make mobility as a service. But then the second question is maybe even more vital is, would you like to choose where you get that access from so that you have multiple choices where you get that access to everything?
1: (laughs) Okay. I give
0: you another yes. Yeah. Yeah. You'd probably say yes. Well, this means then that the only way of getting this happening is that, look, there's a multitude of those, what I call mass operators, and that they all utilize the same taxis and same metros and same trains and buses and scooters and such, because otherwise you won't be able to say yes to these, what the consumer wants. Thirdly, which I think that everyone will say yes, is would you like to have it roaming so that it works globally anywhere you ever want to go? And I don't see any no's in that one. And that means that it's just the way it has to to happen. So the understanding for people and making that is the easy part. Getting the product done with third-party or partners is always a tough one. And for those that read, I would say, already outdated books about tech disruptions and such, that keep on saying that data is the new oil and data is the king and data is all of that, data is cheap. That's actually the price of data is going down and it's going limitlessly towards zero. Trust, I would say, is the new oil of the new, I would say, tech disruptions because trust is harder to copy and it's harder to gain and it's definitely needed
1: how do you price trust well if i explain it this way the
0: what i would call the outdated version of tech disruption is this platform economy where one or a couple of really big players has the intention of becoming the platform that kind of controls the ecosystem this is work in smaller businesses. We have to remember after housing, transport is the second biggest expense for people. No one's going to dominate this. I'd rather call this version API economy where nobody's controlling it other than, than actually authorities, cities, and governments. But nobody's other companies will get a dominant position to control the whole ecosystem. That means then that these And what we have to do every day is we have to connect bits and pieces out of the whole ecosystem to create the user experience that people really deserve and they desire. We can push all of those. That means that to be able to develop, we have to trust into tens or hundreds of different departments so that they hold their end of the bargain and that they also develop all the time. Now, what we see every day is the hardest part of this is because it's also an ever-changing and fast changing market where all of these bits and pieces change so that means that you have to rely on those and those and those pieces and you have to rely on also them developing which means that the best services are such where they are co-developed where we can really discuss openly hey this this would be great for people this would be great for the users this and this stuff and to be able to do that to be able to have really open discussion well you need a lot of trust even within the company you go from partnering all the way to tech and product and trying to get the understanding and trust that look, these people and these, these bits and parts, even internally in our, in our company is tough one, let alone that you have to build that within the whole ecosystem. But then as a competitive advantage, and we've seen that with some of the partners, you work with them, you create that trust for some years, and there's nothing better than then openly developing new stuff where they do their stuff we do our stuff and and you can really see the difference
1: Sampo, besides trust what other strategic or tactical lessons have you learned since you launched in 2015 i would say that we start from the end user
0: they really really know how to expect good things developing an app that goes into an actual physical world is something where you have to excite people all the time one of the learnings is also that this we'd love to say that this is a this is an app but actually for people if it needs to be comparable with their car it's not an app it's a physical thing and how to combine the sort of an app part and the physical service if i take an example It takes a while for in any given area that if for example we utilize car rentals and we have a lot of these things or car shares but let's say car rental how do we educate their staff so that they know how this process for those that have monthly subscription how they're how they're done how do we make sure that all the taxi drivers there are thousands and thousands and every all the time changing that you know, when a WIM user is there, this is how they are then built or not built, actually, and so on and so on. So this, the continuous improvement and working together with partners and, and maybe the learning also that it is. Never thought it would be easy, but understanding that building this trust and jointly developing is, it really demands resources. It demands
1: time to get it right. Now, you mentioned when we last spoke that you've got 24 nationalities in a single office working closely together. I'm really impressed with that diversity, but presumably, that also brings with it certain challenges. I suppose we're one of those
0: companies that I wanted also to be born global. There's no way we can make this concept work in just a single market. There's reasons for that also because if I ask you what would you think that unlimited public transport, taxi, car share, bike rentals and all of that and you have unlimited access to everything in the world and then I ask for what, what do you think the price should be, you probably say I have no idea. This is one of those reasons why we why we have to be global. I've ran startups myself and I've been advising and been in the boards of many startups where you kind of just – let's fix this area first and focus on really these local matters. Then we start internationalizing. And one of the biggest hurdles that I always saw was this cultural barrier that you're so persistently in your own environment that you overlook some of the differences in in other places. That's why deliberately... We've started from scratch that we have all these cultures, so we'd rather face them here in the office, the cultural differences, than getting into the markets where we anyways have to face the cultural differences. So hopefully, if we learn how to act here with all these different nationalities and different personalities, then we're better in getting into the markets and we can do that faster without any cultural shocks.
1: That makes sense. The importance of... Being a truly multicultural business internally to enable you to conduct business with partners, with customers in a truly global manner, that was part of your thinking from day one. There's a second thing, of course, Nokia and its
0: downfall, and and they were truly international, but left really good, talented and international people, especially in, in, in Helsinki area, So it's also good for recruiting. There's a second reason for that. (laughs) Because many of the companies that are quite local, they may be a bit allergic to talents that are not native speakers, Finnish speakers in this respect. So we're more than happy to use those talents.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So what are your goals for Mass Global in 2020 and beyond? Well, 2020,
0: we want to have sort of a breakthrough year It's taken a bit longer than we would have wished to get into multiple areas. But there are a couple of things since our goals are really big. This market is huge. And since we're the first operator and and my expectation is by 2030, most of us will have our personal mobility operators. And if we're the first movers, why wouldn't we want to be the biggest in that? To be able to have that huge, big dream, we need to take steps. and We need to prove ourselves that, we yes, we can. Yes, we can. This is doable. We've proven now that, yes, there's traction. People love the whole idea, and we can actually make this into a good service, that it makes sense. Now, what we want to prove is that we've learned how to copy it into different areas. We, we know how to take care of the differences in, in those, and we can actually get into a number of areas and start the sales over there. Secondly, then next year we'd love to love to be able to show that this is kind of a if you're an operator, it's a critical mass game. And we'd love to learn how do we move fast enough to get into critical mass so that it starts making also more sense with profitability. So that's two of those learnings. And after that, we can start really taking on the world. It makes sense to put hundreds of millions or billions into us to really stay, get scale this global.
1: And what's the best business advice you've ever been given by someone outside of the company? Well, that's a good question.
0: Maybe the best one, I know it's a bit of a cliche, but I remember when I was a young student and there's this guy who came from the same engineering and studied a really strange studied a strange thing of, of fires, really fires and how they the dynamics of fire that was taught to be that well you're not going to be employed because there's not, no need for that and actually started a really big international company that did well and i asked mm-hmm. him what would his advice be and i i know it's a cliche but i've tried to follow that one is do something where you're passionate about and the rest will just follow and if you follow that also in the in the business it tends to go that way maybe the second one was one of my three really mentors on the one of the previous startups that I ran is, you know, when things get really tough and you've got investors and you've got partners and you've got employees and all of these, and and you really need to explain that things are not moving as nice as they should be, or even media and many times. There's one really good advice that tends to help is just be honest.
1: (laughs) Nice. Okay, there's some nice themes in this conversation, freedom, honesty, trust, and passion. I think if you combine all of those together, you've got an awesome chance of being successful. So Sampo, what's the biggest mistake you've made since you set up uh, Mass Global? I would say
0: the biggest, there are a number of mistakes. comes down to people and not being fast enough with them i suppose the biggest mistakes have been with not realizing fast enough if there's a role that someone's not suited for and not making that call not making that decision
1: fast enough and how have you changed your procedures or the way you look at talent to make sure that you handle these situations better going forward coming from
0: and i this this mostly comes from changing sort of the, the role of the company you know in the beginning you're a bunch of uh, just getting things done and developed and how to run that company is different when you become operative and when you when you start the scaling and and my mistake has to do with not realizing that the, the whole essence or, or the whole idea of the company changes while the company's uh, sort of takes on the next steps and and hanging on to to sort of similar type of people. For example, if you if you're in a leading position in the beginning, you're probably the best expert. Now, when you get into 100 people, you're you're in a leading position. Your job is actually managing people and not realizing that the change that the company has to do, and also making sure that people change their roles if if they're not really the right person for that in the growth phase. Has probably been the biggest mistake, I and mean, it's it's taken a bit too long for me. I think now changing the structure, changing where we are and how we are and what we are as a company, it means that to take this really in a in a deliberate way, not to stall any of these decisions, so that it's an ongoing process where we have to make decisions, have to make those decisions every month, for example, and how, how we've now phrased it is that it doesn't just, you don't just wait for things to happen. You really look at it and run through some metrics, which is something you have to start when you grow the company.
1: Yep, hiring exceptional talent and making sure they're in the right roles. That's a challenge for any growing business, that's for sure. Thank you so much for joining me today and sharing with me your revolutionary business ideas. And I wish you and the team enormous success. Thank you. It was great talking.
0: This episode of the Startup to Scale Up Game Plan was brought to you by Alpina Search. Head over to www.alpinasearch.com for advice on scaling your technology startup and recruiting high-impact senior talent.